Welcome to Science Night, presented by the River Power Podcast Belt. Welcome back to another episode of the Science Night Podcast. If you're new to this podcast and judging by the spike in numbers we had so far this season, that may be the case. So I want to make sure that you rate and review this show on your podcatcher of choice and check out all the other shows from the River Power Podcast Network. Now, tonight, I am joined by an archaeologist, Gypsy Price, and we covered a ton of topics ranging from ways to make a living in archaeology, which is, you know, kind of important. And we also talked about cultural resource management. And later in the episode, we even covered the main focus for this podcast, who owns the past. This episode is a little bit longer than normal, but there was so much great stuff that I just couldn't cut it out. So, enough of me. Let's get into Who Owns the Past with Gypsy Price. Gypsy, thank you so much for coming onto this podcast. I'm really excited to have an archaeologist on here. Uh, really, the first archaeologist that I've talked to as part of this podcast. You know, we had somebody else on last season, but uh, who who knows, really? So, my first question, since I have watched a lot of archaeology documentaries. This is something, you know, I, I throw myself into these situations not knowing too much about the subject, but I'm, I'm really pretty keen on archaeology. So I guess my first question is, like, is it a 50-50 split of saving antiquities from uh, Nazi Germany and discovering new dinosaurs, or is it does it skew in one direction or the other? Oh my gosh, you delivered more than I thought you would. I'm very impressed with that joke. <laughs> um, well, first of all, thank you, James, for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. First podcast, so go easy. Um, but I'm super thrilled to talk about what I do and, and kind of where we can go from here, as it were. Yeah, you know, I have never once uh, fought a Nazi yet, but my career is still early in its, in its stages. And um, I have never once found a dinosaur bone. I think we're looking in the wrong places. Maybe we need to go deeper. So I'll, I'll tell the director that next time. But that's what archaeology is. It's a mix of fighting the world war before it begins, wearing a fedora, and then also Jurassic Park, but kind of in reverse, maybe? Sure. I mean, you jest, but really, I mean, a lot of what archaeologists do have to deal with is kind of... You know, trying to like walk that tightrope between making sure people are really involved in their cultural identity and then not, I guess, parlaying or rolling that into really kind of nationalist or even fascists, mm. you know, kind of statements that can be made about that. So I guess in one way, we really are a little closer to Nazi Germany than we pretend to be. <laughs> <laughs> but generally, we, we, we tend to try to downplay the fascist faction of our, of our discipline. <laughs> And before every anthropologist, probably both of you that are listening, <laughs> just 
run to your email machine. I know that you don't look for dinosaurs. I I know. I'm smarter than that. I've taken an archaeology class where the very first slide was archaeologists do not dig dinosaurs. But we want to. And truth be told, I'm an archaeologist because I didn't think that there would be a place for me in the paleontology world. So originally I wanted to look for dinosaurs, but I didn't want to work for an oil company. So I, I shifted gears. It's like a biological anthropologist I know really well who's into the biomechanics of humans uh, and wanted to be an engineer to just couldn't cut the math out. So, so that's fun. Obviously, you work in the field of archaeology. And in all of academia, it's always tough to find that job that really uses the degree that you worked so hard to get. So... What is what is some advice that you have in, in kind of threading that needle, not just uh, going into something unrelated to your field, but also finding the ability to, I don't know, uh, make a living, have a roof? <laughs> Who wants that anymore? Who has time to make a living these days? Um, no, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, one of the problems with not just our discipline, but you know, anthropology, archaeology in general, and, and many others, um, especially if you come up through kind of this academia first wheel, <laughs> uh, like self-perpetuating wheel. I mean, I know you've talked about this on previous podcasts, but you know, the idea isn't just to go forth and make more of yourself, right? Not just to just go back into a university setting and to make more of us that can then go back into a university setting to make more of us so that there's like no real kind of application of these, these techniques or methods um, or theories, um, but really to be able to kind of step outside of it and to really apply them to quote unquote the real world, right? Anthropology in general, a lot of people kind of you know laugh if you say, "Hey, I'm going to get a degree in anthropology." And they're like, "Oh, what are you going to do with that? You know, like be a barista or you know make fries or whatever." And the, the answer is maybe if you have to. <laughs> but I mean, really, the discipline of anthropology is just about learning about people, right? I mean, and there are very few careers out there where you don't have to actually deal with people. So being able to learn about, understand, communicate with people from various different backgrounds, um, and especially in this day and age, of course, with the large focus on diversity. I mean, that's something that a lot of times doesn't just come innately and you kind of need to live through these kind of experiences, um, that are taught in the discipline of anthropology in order to be able to communicate or understand or, integrate with people on those levels. Um, and so oftentimes um, I tell my students that, you know, if anyone asks you what they're going to do with their anthropology degree, I say, whatever the, whatever the F I want, <laughs> um, because basically <laughs> there's a number of disciplines that will hire you with an anthropology degree because they know you have the skill sets that can't really be taught on the job or would take a long time to teach on the job. Whereas, you know, whatever the specific technical skill sets that you need to be successful at that profession can absolutely be taught in more of an apprentice and more effectively in more of an apprenticeship type of, of situation. So when I talk to my students about, you know, what are you going to do with this? I say, we'll find something you're passionate about, which of course, obviously is a very privileged thing to say. <laughs> um, but just like find a, something, even like a method, a technology, a something that really gets you going and then just figure out ways to apply it and really it's wide open. You can do pretty much anything you want, especially with an anthropology degree. Now in archaeology, things are a little different. Archaeologists 
capital A, tend to be more scientifically minded. Don't get mad at me, anthropologists. You know what I'm saying here. Um, but they tend to be more scientifically minded. So archaeology students tend to have like GIS training or remote sensing or, um, you know, like what I do with stable isotopes or some kind of technical, you know, technical methodology, which also can be taken into a number of different fields. And so they shouldn't feel like they have to be so myopic in their career choices just because that's what they're doing in school. But as far as one piece of advice, since that's what you really asked me, um, is to find out a, a skill set or a technique or methodology that you do enjoy and make sure you're really good at that, even if it doesn't necessarily speak to your, your schooling or your degree at the moment. So for example, for archaeologists, something like GIS or remote sensing is very, very lucrative and very... Um, highly sought out in multiple fields. I mean, engineering, I mean, you can work for the CDC, the EPA, I mean, all sorts of things. And as long as you have that, like that kind of like solid technical skill, all the other stuff is just kind of icing on the cake, if that makes sense. It'll set you apart. Sure. Yeah. No, that's really great advice. Um, I really hope that every cultural anthropologist that you meet does not follow you and hurl things at you after after <laughs> that real sick burn that you delivered there. Wouldn't be the first time, won't be the last. Uh, you yeah, know. <laughs> yeah. And the linguistics, if they ever finish their data set, will also take umbrage with calling them not scientific, but they're just so busy with phonemes. <laughs> I was going to say, wait till they figure out some different section of phonemes. You won't understand what they're saying, so it'll be fun. <laughs> They'll get it. It'll be a nice inside joke for them. If we ever strike it big in the linguistics world, I'll be the most surprised. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the some of the different things that you can do, um, you know, outside of just teaching archaeology and just field work. Are there things outside of the field that you can do? Oh, sure. Yes. Really, um, the world is your oyster, if you will. I mean, there's a number of business and corporate institutions that really highly value anthropologists and archaeologists, especially if you have some kind of technical skill set like AutoCAD or, like I said, with remote sensing, or if you're working even with, as a linguist, if you're working with uh, certain software sets that are very uh, specific um, to your discipline but could also have other applications. Business and corporate institutions, they're all about trying to get their either product or whatever it is that they're trying to do to the people. And how do you do that? Well, you hire someone who knows people um, or knows how to talk to them. And so anthropologists, archaeologists are very good at that. Government institutions, of course, I think I mentioned the CDC or the EPA. Um, you can also work with the, like things like the United States Census Bureau, who just needs you to go out and talk to people. Again, all about communication. Um, obviously, the CDC and the EPA are going to want you to have those people skills, but also some kind of technical or scientific background. Um, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is a place that goes for archaeologists, anthropologists quite often. Um, even things like the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is obviously really big right now. I know a number of anthropology uh, colleagues who went off to work for them. They got kind of some flack from some of our colleagues from, for like <laughs> going and working for quote-unquote the man, if you will, or just you know the federal government. But really, I mean, <clears throat> how do you affect change from the inside out, right? So they wanted to be on the ground and actually trying to make things better with their vision. Um, so things like that. <clears throat> also, like I said, community-based or, or um, nonprofit organizations, it's not going to make you a big buck. Um, 
if so, maybe it's not the way to go if you really need to pay back your student loans. Um, but it's definitely a place that looks for and appreciates anthropologists and archaeologists. Um, archaeologists in general, since we're talking, or specifically since we're talking about archaeology, um, one of my favorite kind of nonprofit organizations is called the U.S. Committee of the Blue Shield um, out of The Hague. And what they do is they work closely with the military, um, generally the U.S. military, but they have connections to other um, militaries throughout global military um, organizations. And basically what they do is they want to preserve historical monuments um, or cultural material that are in places where there is conflict. Um, so they could be active military zones um, or places where they might expect it to be. So that what they do is they basically provide or, or they create and provide databases so that when there are exercises or when there is actual active conflict, they're informing the people who are on the ground what to look for and what to avoid and, and whatever it is that they can do um, to stay away from historical monuments. And so try to kind of mitigate the danger or the, or the damage that would be done to historical man monuments in active war zones. That can kind of be kind of an abstract uh, thought. So as far <laughs> as like little things that they could do, one of my favorite things that they do is they create these little decks of playing cards that have cultural monuments in it that are regionally specific. And then they hand it out to soldiers that are on the ground in those areas so that they are like while they're playing their games or like hanging out during their downtime, they're learning about the cultural monuments in the area and they know what to look for and they kind of and they kind of integrate cultural heritage into their own practices um, of, you know, cultural heritage of the area into their own practices uh, mm -hmm. so that when they're actually out there, it becomes something that they think about. I mean, obviously, you know, surviving or, or whatever the mission is, is at most, but anything that can be done to try to mitigate damage to cultural uh, monuments um, during active war zone is, is excellent. Now, do they also... Um because I know this was a big thing in World War II, but do they also discourage like looting or any kind of taking of cultural artifacts as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's that's a great question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, part of their mission is to educate not just about the things that we know about, but also why it is that we don't want to damage them or or pull them out of the ground and take and put them in our boots and take them home. Um, yeah, absolutely. One of the part of their mission is to educate. Uh, people who might not think about cult the kind of the worth or of cultural monuments that aren't specific to them so that they respect it once they come across it in, in the quote unquote field in the field. This is, this is going to sound really dumb, but <laughs> it just seems like they're acting like this group of referees in the war. Like, no, 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 this is out of bounds. Please, please don't blow up this area. Keep the blowing up to this area. Yeah, no, you joke, but I mean, that's pretty spot on, you know, because obviously you can't tell people what to do and not to do in those situations because they don't have the authority to do so. And obviously there's another objective, but anything you can do to educate people yeah. um, about what's there can help. And it allows for those things to stay in their location, kind of in situ. So you have, and and this is, this is kind of the thing you'll learn if you take like an intro to archaeology class, that you need the context. You can't just have the item. So you need to be able to have the item and then have the material culture and then roll that into the other parts of the culture to actually understand what the item is. Absolutely, 100%. So when you're you know, digging down, digging your trenches, if you hit something, if at all possible, move over a meter. But if not, obviously, 
what are those practices that you can do to kind of preserve the context in, in whatever situation you can. Mm-hmm. So why don't we talk about specifically what you do in archaeology? We've talked about some other opportunities that are available for everyone, but what do you specifically do uh, in your day-to-day other than talk to, to uh, very minor podcast personalities? <laughs> um, well, obviously this last year, since we are recording this kind of at the beginning of 2021, things have been very different. Um, but if you had asked me a year or two years ago, my kind of like, I live kind of in this annual cycle. So I'm a biological anthropologist. I I identify as an archaeologist, if you will, um, and I specialize in stable isotopes. So basically, what are people eating? How are they moving? Um, what type of animals are they interacting with and stuff like that in the archaeological record? Mo- most of my research, as far as my academic research or my personal research, uh, takes place in Greece. Um, but I also work on sites throughout the eastern seaboard, or well, the eastern United States, and then down into the Caribbean as well. Um, again, so I mentioned that I work kind of on this annual cycle. So during the year, during the normal year, quote unquote, um, I would teach at a university in the spring and the fall semesters, um, usually anthropology courses, archaeology courses, biological anthropology, um, human evolution, things like that. Um, and then during the summer, I would spend my my like I would spend my time on the actual sites that I is are part of my academic research, which are in Greece. So I would excavate for about ten weeks out of the year, um, and as a biological archaeologist on the sites that I'm working on, I'm responsible for all the human remains. So I would I I kind of uh, manage the human remains, the collections that we have already excavated on these sites, um, go through uh, and uh, take stock of them, and you know do research on them and manage any type of students that want to come in and and research those collections. And then I would be on the site as well, helping uh, to kind of direct excavations, just in that saying, you know. When we come across human remains, these are the types of practices we should be engaging in. Um, and then usually I'm in the field at the end of the summer when we get to like the floor surfaces of whatever it is, that, you know, where there's actual human remains to, to kind of oversee things firsthand. Um, so I do all that, but then also that that's kind of my academic life. But on top of that, for the <laughs> last couple of years, just because that's not enough, um, I also work for a contract archaeology firm, Search Inc. And just for the uninitiated, I guess, <laughs> contract archaeology is something that really took off uh, probably in the 90s, although it was around before that. But in the 90s, there was a proclamation that Basically, any time um, a federal project or any project that has federal funding uh, takes place or, or initiates, you have to make sure that you go out, basically check and make sure there's no historical or cultural monuments out there. And if there are, you have to find a way to mitigate or avoid or at least minimize any type of damage of those of those monuments. So basically... What ended up happening is that engineering firms, um, even some architectural firms, and then even just independent contract archaeology firms popped up all over the place because now every time a project takes place, any time a shovel is put in the ground, you have to go out there and make sure we're not damaging something. Um, So I work for one such firm, um, Search Inc. Um, I am currently working from home, uh, obviously over the past year, but also since I was teaching. Um, And I am technically a GIS technician. Um, So basically I take uh, GIS information, remote sensing information. I use it to create models that would inform field-based 
um, excavations on site. So basically I say, look at all this data that I can, and all this research I can do about the area and about the sites for these areas that we're going to work in. You, we need to dig here, here, and here for X, Y, and Z reasons. Um, and then I provide kind of like ground support, if you will, or, or computer support, I guess, data support while they're in the field, um, and then help with figures and report writing afterwards. Um, so Currently, I'm part of the West Indies Division, so I've just in this last year started working on a number of projects in um, like Puerto Rico, <coughs> largely, but also parts of Florida, uh, since it kind of goes a little north, <laughs> um, and the like. So it's kind of a new, it, for me, it's been fun and interesting because I spent so much time in the classical world um, or on like kind of the mid-Atlantic side of North American archaeology that it's kind of fun to get into a new area and, and take these techniques and skills that I learned previously and turn them to, to look at different cultures. And it seems like uh, the the contract work is going to be what most people come in contact with at least in the in the United States uh when they're going to actually like interact one to one with an archaeologist they're going to have a project they're going to need to get an archaeologist to sign off with it on it and then it either happens or there's alterations or i guess there's a significant find and then the project just kind of stops is there and and I could see where this could be taken uh, from the non-archaeologist uh, person trying to get a project off the ground as potentially a nuisance or a negative. Is there an effort in your field to, I don't want to say spin this because I think it's very important, but to have the public look at this as a, a positive and protective measure rather than something they just have to kind of trudge through to get their project going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you've hit on something that every contract archaeologist has had to struggle with. And, and yes, absolutely. As far as the general population who doesn't give a crap about archaeology, if they are going to be hit up against archaeology in their everyday lives and not on the screen with, you know, Indiana Jones or uh, Lara Croft, um, it is probably <laughs> going to be someone who is working for a contract archaeology firm doing some kind of cultural resource management project. We are the people that, like you mentioned, if you are putting in a highway, for example, you know, the surveyors come out and say, this is where we're putting it. And then the archaeologists come out and they look to make sure nothing's there. And if there is something there, then we say, no, you're not going to put it here, <laughs> basically. And like you said, there are a number of people, especially in the contract world or in the construction world, who do look at us a little side-eyed and they're like, oh my gosh, they're going to cost us you know, an extra month's worth of work, or we're going to have to do something much more expensive to move the project and resurvey, or we're just going to have to um, change our plan, like our, our actual excavation plans to kind of get around something. So yes, you were right. It is oftentimes people are not, or at least people in the construction industry are not thrilled to see us come through um, because you're right. We are a little bit of a nuisance. I mean, really all we can do is kind of joke with them and have a beer with them and try to make things a little, you know, say, Hey, we're just the average working stiff too. Like no need to hate us. We hate ourselves enough. Um, you know, so obviously on the ground, if we run into them, there's a lot of like waving across the transect lines or whatnot. As far as like large scale, I guess, efforts by the discipline to reach out. The only thing I can really think of as far as like an organized effort uh, would be that we're, at least in the institutions I've worked in, we've started focusing on making sure that 
archaeology and under, undergrads know about CRM work um, and know that it's an option because it used to be kind of looked down on. I mean, it was kind of like academics are like, well, CRM is what you do when you can't cut it in academia. Um, and that is that is very much not the case anymore, which is great. We've come a long way in the last 20 years. So we've started to make sure that undergrads know what CRM, what the best practices are, kind of what your opportunities are. And therefore, it kind of is starting from the next generation that everyone can communicate with everyone else that are outside of archaeology um, to try to just kind of get everyone to understand what, why we're there in the first place. We're not there to slow down the project. We don't get our kicks, you know, by saying, take that track hoe over there for eight weeks. Um, you know, that's not fun for us. Um, but, but what we really do care about is the actual material that's in the ground and making sure we're doing it the best service we can. Now, with that said, sometimes you just can't make people care, you know, and that's mm. just a battle that you're not going to win. And we just have to kind of accept that and just treat each other with human decency until we get off the project and then just go our separate ways. So, I mean, it's not always a hundred percent successful. I, and I thought of like, maybe, maybe like two things you can employ. A is a series of PSA videos that you could distribute starring some of the more famous archeologists like Harrison Ford and <laughs> Angelina Jolie. And the other one is like, you guys have really cool toys. Like, let the construction guys fly the drone. It might be that easy. Let them push the little ground-penetrating radar tractor around in very straight lines in a very meticulous way. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you are willing to take responsibility for any damage might, that might come to that very expensive equipment, <laughs> maybe, I am maybe not go willing to share. do that. And this is something that maybe people don't realize is that archaeology is more than a shovel and a trowel, right? I mean, we use a number of the same machinery that engineers use, that architects use, that construction workers use. I mean, we have very precise technical skills that are more than just going out digging a hole, which digging a hole is not as easy as it sounds either. Let's, let's just get that out of the way too. <laughs> digging a hole is a science in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. And linguists can make fun of us for that science if they would like. Especially a hole that will stay nice and, and straight-walled and not fall in on itself. Yes, there is yeah. <laughs> There's quite a bit of work that goes into that planning. I think one thing we should do, because we've mentioned it, and it's going to be kind of a, a hallmark to the rest of this episode, is quickly define and explain what CRM is. Oh, great. Yeah. So CRM, or cultural resource management, is this term that's been given to the industry that popped up largely in response to something called Section 106, which is part of a piece of legislation that came out of the mid-90s that basically said that any federal undertaking has to take into consideration the effects that that federal undertaking will, will have on cultural material or historical monuments. Cultural resource management it does just what it says. There is a set of procedures that are put in place that manages the way that you look for, identify, and then handle cultural material that's found hopefully in situ, um, but if not, then there's procedures for that as well, um, as well as a number of procedures that help to integrate those practices into other legislative bodies. So like things like the EPA, um, things like environmental legislation, you know, we have to do things in accordance with them. It also says who we have to contact when we find X, Y, and Z. Um, it basically just gives a piece of legislation that protects the material remains in the ground that otherwise wouldn't have anyone to represent them. And so it gives us a piece of literature to point at <laughs> that outlines the procedure so that everyone's kind of on the same boat and playing by the rules. Other countries do this differently. They have like different dates for different meaningful things, but this is kind of what 
would define something that's like archaeological versus a modern grave? That's a great point. I mean, I think what you're, you're coming to is like, at what point does something become an archaeological artifact? And at what point is it just kind of yesterday's refuse or, or human remains that were buried? And that's not always cut and dry. In general, <laughs> there's always kind of this like 50-year window. They're like, if it's older than 50 years, maybe take a second glance at it. Obviously, the material itself kind of dictates that. I mean, a 100-year-old human remains... It might not be as interesting archaeologically as a hundred-year-old, you know, something else, but um, the context is important, right? So what has happened to the community surrounding that object? So is that community still up and thriving? Can we draw direct lines from that object to a, to a community or a practice that's taking on, that's, that's happening now? Or is it something that's kind of been lost to the ether? And usually those kind of lost to the ether things, it either goes one of two ways. Did anyone see me find it? <laughs> no? Okay, <laughs> let's just push it to the side. I mean, obviously we don't do that, but <laughs> other people might. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. But um, especially with human remains, and, and uh, you had mentioned you're going to have another podcast where you talk about NAGPRA and you talk about what to do with human remains, especially in this country. I mean, other other countries deal with their human remains in different ways. Um, but human remains in this country are particularly touchy. So really, if you find any human remains, everything stops just because the potential that it could be something that is, even if it's only 20 years ago, if it's not related to the community that's there now, you need to figure out who that person, quote unquote, or, or those materials belong to, and then try to work with them on what the next steps are. And NAGPRA is the North American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Yes, thank you. Yeah, That is something that I, I think warrants its own very deep dive. So we'll be having an episode with an expert. Not to say that, that uh, Gypsy could not absolutely handle herself in a very informative way, but <laughs> we'll be right back. But first, a quick commercial break. Future James is popping in to talk about the Nemean Center. They are a research organization that is based out of Berkeley that seeks to preserve cultural heritage through education, excavation, and conservation of archaeological sites and materials in and around the Nemea Valley, Greece. And they work quite a bit with Gypsy. You can find out more about their work and how to support them at nemeacenter.berkeley.edu. Can you hear me? Do you smell the foul corruption? Things get a little strange here. And what about me? Like, really strange. Grotesque stench of rotten flesh. Yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast. I'm only just starting. Just search, and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello. Come here. And welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. We're at the 40-minute recording mark. Uh, now's a good time to kind of get into the meat of the actual podcast. Um, just like every good meandering podcast host, um, I don't want to get to the title of the episode until we're at least an hour into it. Well, you got to keep them, keep them waiting, wanting more. That's right. You know, we've had three ad breaks and, and have, <laughs> have made our money back. Uh, yeah. Now we'll actually talk about the topic of this episode, which is who owns the past? So uh, who is it? <laughs> oh, well, such an easy question. This is why we waited till the end, because give mm -hmm. me five minutes and I'm done. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's obviously like 
I'm I'm gonna say uh, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Oh well, you know what? In the real world, practically, that might be closer to the truth than we all want to believe. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but of course, so who owns the patent? I mean, that is a massive question, one that everyone is trying to answer all the time. The real answer is none of us, but all of us, kind of all at once. I mean, it really depends on what that object is, what you consider the human experience to be, <laughs> and on what scale is the human experience. Who owns the past is something that's very difficult, and it changes not just per country, but per like city block, <laughs> depending yeah, on who you're, talking, sure. who you're talking to and, again, what you're talking about. We mentioned human remains. In this country, we tend to have a lot of kind of... Um, we put a lot of emphasis on human remains. They're very kind of sacred. We're, we, we don't deal with death in the same way that a number of other cultures do. I'm going to speak to it in regards to the Greek culture, just because that's what I'm most familiar with. Um, so like when we deal with human remains here, obviously there's this whole protocol. You, everything stops and you kind of have to you kind of have to work with the local populations. And again, you'll get to that in your NAGPRA episode. But um, for places like Greece, where they're a little more... Um, they approach human remains with a little less, I don't want to say reverence, because they very much respect uh, the dead, but kind of once you've kind of crossed over and you've become bones as opposed to a human, you kind of become part of this more communal concept or ideas. For example, the major practice in Greek orthodoxy is that you have kind of this elevated tomb for all intents and purposes. I mean, it's a grave, but it's elevated. It has like a cap on it and you put someone in there. And then the next time someone in the family passes away, you you open the tomb, you kind of gather up whoever's in there and you put them in a nice little fabric sack or, or pillowcase or something. And then you push them to the side and you put someone else in there. And then that happens over and over again. So that you, that, that grave is not so individualistic like it is in a lot of our, you know, things that you and I might be more familiar with, but it's much more communal. So you become kind of the part of the quote-unquote past as opposed to that person. And they've been doing this for thousands of years. I mean, and they were doing this in the Bronze Age. They were doing that all the way up. I mean, they do it now. Um, And so because of that, I think that when you come across human remains in the archaeological record, people are less concerned about, like, making sure... It's not that they don't respect those individuals, but they don't have that, like, personal, hey, that's my great-great-grandfather, hey, that's whatever, you know, please don't touch it, walk away, and and don't disturb anything. Really what they're concerned about is kind of the larger picture, um, if that makes sense. So for them, things like human remains are less... Uh, sticky, <laughs> um, but sure. as far as like the the associated materials, those those are very hotly debated. So as far as who owns those associated materials or um, things that are tied to the mortuary environment, tend to have uh, people tend to be much less or, or not agree as much. Whereas something like a house or something, people or like a pile of bricks, usually people are like nobody owns that. Do whatever you want with it, right? <laughs> so when you're talking about mm-hmm. who owns the past, like what type of the past are we actually talking about? Who owns the past as far as, like, uh, there's also obviously a chronological um, component to it. If something was 10,000 years ago versus if something was 100 years ago, you know, it's much harder to tack down who it is should own that 10,000-year object, you know, old object, as opposed to something that I found in my grandmother's house, you know last year or whatever, which I know has been in the family for 200 gener- or for 200 years, you know, for a couple mm-hmm. generations, that's, that's obviously mine. Just to kind of 
put that into maybe archaeological context and, and something that maybe a number of your listeners have very are familiar with. Um, I'm sure you have heard of Kennewick Man. I thought that maybe this would be a, a, a good way to kind of bring up who owns the past because Kennewick Man was this um, or is this set of remains, human remains, that was found in Washington many, many years ago. And at the beginning, the archaeologists and the scientists who were interested in studying it because it dated back to a time, um, now we know it dated back to about 10,000, 9,000, 10,000 years ago, but dated back to a time where the movement of humans into the United into what we now know as North of America it was kind of hotly be, debated. We didn't know where people were coming from. There was a lot of disagreement, which there still is, but less so um, with the help of genetic studies. But there was this push from the kind of scientific archaeological population to study these remains, bring them into the into the lab, you know, study those remains, try to figure out who they're related to, because they could answer kind of these larger questions about human movement in the landscape and kind of inform better our collective identity as a human species, if you will. However, there were some local uh, populations of indigenous, like indigenous populations, um, who very much were like, well, this was found in our general area. We have been here for thousands of years, regardless of what you think. This person is most likely, the remains of this person is most likely someone that we are related to somehow, even if it's not direct blood relations, it's still the same, like, group or people, because obviously people define family very differently depending on where you're from. So there was a there were many, many years where they were going back and forth because obviously the scientific or kind of archaeological group were saying that this is important. It answers these questions that we have about our past, whereas those local populations were saying, we don't have those questions. That is part of our history, and you cannot answer the questions that we have about that using this material, and you need to return that material to us so that we can dispose, dispose of it properly. I mean, you know, rebury it. Um, and, I mean, it was a long fight, and eventually, um, after with the help of genetic studies, actually, um, they actually linked the remains of Kennewick Man to one of the tribes that still lived in the area, and they eventually repatriated the remains and put them away. But there was a lot of kind of hurt feelings, and it brought up all of a bunch of conversations and a bunch of disagreements about who owns the past, what questions are more important? I mean, is it the questions of the people who are finding the material and want to answer questions about humans writ large? Or is it the people who may or may not be directly tied to that individual? Um, and there's no right answer, right? I mean, personal opinion is that the remains should have been returned and eventually the right thing was done. Um, but that you know, doesn't mean I'm 100% correct. <laughs> but you're right. There's this real push and pull between scientists where there is the, we can learn so much potentially from this find, but it's probably not the right thing to do. And it seems like we're getting closer to a tipping point where we start to ask the, is it the right thing to do more and more quickly than we have in the past. Um, especially when it comes to things like cultural heritage and specifically human remains. But, you know, wasn't always the case. Uh, yeah. Well, and, <laughs> you know, you're never going to convince someone who doesn't think your questions are important that you need to answer them. Right. So right. if you take this material that is somehow tied to someone else and they don't want you to do destructive analysis, or even just kind of handle it at all because they shouldn't be handled, you're never going to convince them that your questions are important 
if they don't have those same questions. And so that's where it really comes down to communication and negotiation. And, and honestly, at the end of the day, you know, you just have to come to some agreement about what is the right, quote unquote, right thing to do. And this is definitely a topic for a full show as well, but just like really briefly, the idea that we have really great dating techniques now is only possible because there are one centimeter chunks taken out of a lot of yeah. fairly important finds so that we could kind of play around and figure it out. So if you ever ever see a very square chunk taken out of something, yeah. that could have been part of that let's learn how to carbon date or argon date process back in the olden times. Yeah, the old, back in the day. Yeah, and, and I mean, stable isotope analysis and obviously ADNA, like DNA studies, those are destructive processes and there's no way to get around the fact. I mean, you can tell people, oh, it's only like two milligrams or whatever a sample. It's still destructive. You're never going to get that back. And so the reality is, yeah, we drill bits of teeth off and we grind bone down and we take pieces <laughs> out of a skull and we, and we do scientific analysis, quote unquote, like chemical analysis on it, which can never be undone. And yeah, you just have to, as a group kind of decide what, what, what's more worthwhile, what's, what's more meaningful, the answers to those questions or the material itself, the integrity of the material. And I feel like I came down pretty hard on, on that fact. I'm fascinated by stable isotope analysis specifically, but I think you know, you always have to weigh it, but the fact that we can we can talk about migration in an archaeological context now is so useful to understanding cultures, specifically like in areas in like the American Southwest and where you're talking about how, how the Americas were peopled. That's been incredibly useful to talk about those patterns, but you're right. It, it is also destructive. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why there are large portions of the world or large chronological time periods where we know nothing about the isotopic or the DNA composition of those people, because it's just not something you just don't do that to those remains, you know, in those areas. And it's just something you have to work with. It's just, we can only ask so many questions and we can only answer the questions, you know, that we can ask and you just got to do your best. And obviously, you know, I set you up a little bit by making you tell me exactly who owns the past, <laughs> knowing that there's no answer to it. But, you know, I figured if you if you had an answer, maybe we'd throw it up there and get a paper and yeah, grant was... <laughs> and all that stuff. Uh... <laughs> Tenure track position. <laughs> exactly. But what I want to kind of move into now, and maybe we'll talk about this until the end of the show, is, you know, I said we didn't always do this the right way. And there are some very key examples that are still hotly debated. I mean, this was happening during the Napoleonic Wars, mm -hmm. um, and, and we're, we're still really debating who owns the past and what heritage is this a part of. And it's also from your area, specifically from ancient Greece, but also kind of the larger Hellenic world at the time. I'm thinking of... I want to say the right term, the Parthenon marbles mm -hmm. or the Elgin marbles, yeah. if you want to actually be able to look this up and see something meaningful. If you want to give that trader some credit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I have true, opinions. True. I think we share them. Yeah. <laughs> and then also the Rosetta Stone, which oh, sure. is another hotly debated thing because not only does Egypt want it back, but you know, it's also very linked to Greek Hellenism and also French yeah. military history. And the English have it. <laughs> yeah. Well of course they do. They're they're the English. Maybe I'll make a a quicker 
kind of standalone episode to talk about the history of these two things, because they are fascinating. Their history is amazing. The Elgin Marbles are a series of friezes, meaning carvings in the wall, and statues from the Parthenon uh, in Athens. Am I saying that? I'm right, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) And the Rosetta Stone is basically the way that we figured out how to decode hieroglyphics to a large part. If you're listening to this, you probably know what the Rosetta Stone is, (laughs) or at least have paid money to learn a language via the software that shares its name. They're like, why is he also up in arms about a CD? Yeah, yeah. It's far too expensive. It's far too expensive. And it's telling you things you don't need to know, like, this is a sea urchin. Like, when are you going to use that? Uh, Anyway, but uh, the actual stone in question, it has hieroglyphs, Greek, and demotic. Not demonic, like I want to say. (laughs) Demotic. And because of that, we think we know what hieroglyphs say. Uh, But really, who knows? And those were found in places that are not London, but that's where they currently exist. And there's a lot of effort to kind of move them back to where they were discovered and housed. And a lot of people believe belong. So what are your thoughts on this situation and kind of what it says to the profession as a whole? Yeah. So again, a loaded question. Absolutely. I want to get you on wax saying something crazy. (laughs) I'm going to do it. Okay. Where to start with this question? So a bunch of this, again, kind of ties back to, like you said, who owns the past, right? And and why is it important that we care who owns the past? Um, You were talking about like back to the Napoleonic Wars and like oftentimes this comes into question when we are in times of conflict, because one of the most powerful things you can do when you're trying to kind of undermine or or overtake a region is you can destroy their history because then you destroy their identity and you kind of disconnect them from the landscape as well as their past. Like the Nazis tried to do in Greece. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and, 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 you know, we see it, I mean, just, just much more recently, we've seen that in areas of the Middle East, where you have people who have a very different belief system, who are coming in, and in order to kind of, again, disconnect the people from their past, disconnect the people from maybe different belief systems, they destroy all iconography, and they destroy all sorts of um, architecture and, and sculptures and things, so that that no longer exists, so that you can't point to something and say, look, we've been here, look, this is what I believe in. It's it's real, it's meaningful, um, and instead you have nothing. It's psychological warfare is what it is, right? I mean, and so it, it is very powerful. Being able to disconnect someone or take something from someone that is integral to who they are or where they come from um, can be very powerful, and again, it can be very psychologically damaging. Uh, you mentioned the Elgin Marbles and then the Rosetta Stone. Um, I'm going to speak more to the Elgin Marbles just because I'm more passionate about that. Um, the Rosetta Stone... <laughs> Also, shouldn't be in Britain, but again, other people might have better arguments for it than I do. By its nature, it belongs to many more people because it it was a piece of transcription which allowed you to translate between various different cultures, right? Sure. So those Elgin marbles, uh, about half of which, so yes, so like you said, there are these friezes, these sculptures and things that are from the Parthenon as well as other various monuments on the Acropolis, which of course is the the big kind of center of democracy hill in in Athens. And I'll just do a brief history just because it kind of gives context to Mm -hmm. why it is that I feel or anyone should feel like they should be returned. These were 
pieces of architecture as well as art that had kind of fallen into disrepair because the Acropolis itself had been used for decades as different things. They stored ammunitions there on multiple occasions. It had been bombed. It had been hit with cannonballs. I mean, you, even if you go there today, it has pockmarks all over the standing architecture from 1,500 years, 1,800 years of just living, just being. It's like the wrinkles or the crow's feet, right, mm -hmm, um, that we mm -hmm. get on our faces. But so back in the 1800s, Greece was actually under the reign of the Ottoman Empire at the time. Greeks would tell you that it wasn't under Greek rule. It was kind of being occupied, if you were, the Ottoman occupation. And at the time, uh, the Acropolis had kind of fallen into disrepair um, just because they had come off uh, a little bit of unrest in like there just wasn't money to fix those things up. People didn't care about those sort of things. Um, so Lord Elgin, who's this guy, he was a British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. Under the, and again, the real story was is, has been lost to history. No one knows 100% of the true details. But basically, he came in, um, said that he had permission from the sultan at the time to go in and take some of the materials and bring them back to England for safekeeping, quote unquote, because they were just laying around, getting rained on, and you know, eroding away. Um, and really, they were beautiful and needed to be kept. So. Uh, he did. He came in, he took him, took him away, put him in his private residence, had him on display, because that's what you do if you're trying to keep something safe, put it in your hallway. Long story short, he came into some financial issues. The marbles ended up in the British Museum. They got sold to the to kind of the nation state, and then they, got, they ended up in the British Museum, where they've been for 200 years and remain to this day. A couple decades later, in the 1800s, Greeks, the Greek state kind of comes back in, and it's owned by Greeks again, and this push to bring those marbles back starts, and it's gone on ever since, um, you know, with varying degrees of success. I guess you could say zero success since they're all still in Britain, um, <laughs> but <laughs> in the National Museum in London. But so there, there's all these arguments on both sides about whether or not these marbles, these, these material cultural items that are very specific to Greece and actually very iconic in that, you know, they were, they were adorned the Parthenon, one of the most recognizable structures of the world kind of the seat of Western civilization, democracy, sure, sure. if you will, should actually be returned. Uh, a number of Greeks, actually I've never talked to a Greek who doesn't agree that they should be returned because they belong there. I mean, they came from there. Uh, they also feel like they were taken under suspicious circumstances. There's, to my knowledge, there's never been any definitive proof that Lord Elgin really had permission to take them. Just kind of a lot of anecdotal evidence, as well as like some translations of the original piece of paper. And even that, it's like dubious, right? Yeah, the oh, translation, yeah, it could mean you may take some or yes. one or yes. any, depending on how you want to translate it. Or like non-art, you know, maybe architectural. Yeah, no, no, no. The, the guy did some art, you know, did some bad stuff. He shouldn't have done it. <laughs> but he's then <dead> gone <laughs> and we can't blame him anymore. It was taken under dubious circumstances. Even if he did have permission, it was permission from the Ottoman Empire, which are not the Greeks and not the people who should have owned the material in the first place. Therefore... It doesn't matter if he got permission or not. A lot of the arguments now are that half of these pieces are still in Greece, and they're actually housed at this lovely Acropolis Museum that opened up in 2009. And it's beautiful, and it's right next to the Acropolis. And you, you walk through, I don't know if you've had the pleasure of going to this museum, but it's, it's three stories of artifacts, not just from the 
the Acropolis, but from other places, but mostly from the Acropolis. And it kind of goes through time and through kind of trends. And at the very top, it has all the friezes, all the remains that they have of the friezes, as if you were on scaffolding walking around the Parthenon. You can even go on the inside and see all the tool marks, um, like on the inside, which is just a very powerful way. And then you look out the window and the Acropolis is right there, like you're looking up at it. Very powerful way. It's like contextualizing these materials. It, it is putting them in a place where they came from. And you are up there kind of appreciating every little nook and cranny of it, even the more mundane things like the tool marks. So anyway, so you can see all these things are beautiful, but half of it is casts or missing because half of that stuff is in England. And so a lot of Greeks today think that, you know, these materials, it, think, think that it, it's like taking some great piece of artwork like the last supper or something and then like taking one of the disciples and sending it to paris you know and sure. another disciple and sending it to london or you know taking apart this great piece of work that is supposed to be together and cohesive and be you know enjoyed as one piece instead of little bits and pieces that it doesn't mm -hmm. quite make sense if you like have the torso missing there or the heads of the horses missing there or the foot of a guy missing there you know like it's you're not getting the whole picture. One of the other arguments for why places might not deserve, maybe is a good word, to keep their own cultural material, of course, is a very colonial argument, um, but it's that they do not have the resources or the, or the abilities to properly take care of mm. those materials. So one of the major arguments until the Acropolis Museum opened up, and actually one of the big pushes to build the Acropolis Museum was to address this argument, was that Greek, Greece didn't have a place to properly conserve and display and protect these cultural monuments, these marbles, um, and that England was just going to politely take care of that for them because, you know, they, they had like a nice air-conditioned area or climate-controlled area <laughs> that they could like put it up and put little plaques next to and, you know, everyone would see them. So they were like really doing the Greeks a favor by letting the world kind of have access to these things. Again, now that the Acropolis Museum is up and actually as soon as they opened it up, the Greeks were like, okay, we're ready for them. And, and you know, obviously the National Museum in London was like, no, we're good. We, we got them. But anyway, this idea that people can't take care of their own heritage is also a very kind of difficult line <laughs> to walk. It's terrible, too, because then yeah. it's, it's super colonial. You're never going to – it's never a good look to make that <laughs> argument. Yeah. Uh, you did an, an amazing job at laying out very strategically the – argument for returning them to Greece. Um, <laughs> here, I'll give the counterpoint that the British Museum... Oh, sure. We don't want to, is basically yeah. what they said. Well, and again, I think I mentioned my favorite argument at the beginning that, uh, you know, it's been here for 200 years. It's part of our cultural identity, too. So you can't just bring them back. Which, I don't know how you say that with a straight face to a Greek person, but... I mean, they said it about the subcontinent of India for a bunch of years, so... <laughs> yeah. So maybe we shouldn't just take a British person... At yeah. uh, face value. No. It opens, to keep it within the Greek world, it opens a bit of a Pandora's box for the specifically like the British Museum, where if they had to return everything that was taken in a dubious fashion, there would yeah. be like, <laughs> other than the gift shop, 10 yeah. pieces. <laughs> it would be very empty in the British Museum. Because remember, hey, hey, kids, remember when I said... It, we didn't always used to ask if it's the right thing to do first. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you're right. I mean, if the British had to give back everything that they ever took, there'd be nothing left. And it's not just the British, of course, this happens in various other places. It's just, obviously they went on a really major campaign a couple hundred years ago. And, um, 
and we're very successful at it. So, and obviously it's been done at, at various points in history too. It's just, this is the one that's closest to us, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to make it seem like I'm going to let the United States off the hook. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, hold on. <laughs> exactly. Natural History Museum in Manhattan. Like we, we, we have some conversations or, you know, the country of Spain, I'm, I'm sure. Sure. They they have a little bit to to hide, yeah. but I think very interestingly, and I know I've kept you a little bit longer, but this links on to the last thing I want to talk to because specifically with the Elgin marbles, mm-hmm. there is this thought that well, we're all in the Western civilization coaching tree, right? It's <laughs> uh, the cradle of Western civilization, and I think it's really interesting how. Britain is making the argument that the you know the whole thing with the British Empire is that the western civilization is is the hallmark of civilization mm-hmm. but then at the same time arguing that the place where that kind of got created is not able to adequately protect their culture it just seems like a very british thing to say on the one hand you can kind of sympathize with with people who just care so much about cultural material that they want all cultural material ever to be preserved, you know, throughout history. But of course this world would be very full if we preserved every single thing that ever, ever happened to it, mm-hmm. you know, and then obviously, you know, there's something to be said for oral and written traditions slash, sure. slash rec- records. But if we're just kind of talking about material records right now. Um, so at some point, something has to get culled, right? I mean, it's like when you're going through stuff in your basement, right? You're like, why do I have 80 boxes of stuff that I never look at? It's just so important to me, but I like, I never look at it, you know, and it's not telling a story or whatever. So you have to go through and you have to call, even though there might be something like, I really care about those notes that I took in calculus. Cause I was really good at color coding or, you know, whatever, like that is a story. It is a narrative, but is that something that needs to be perpetuated into time beyond? I mean, mm-hmm. so there has to be some kind of way to cull the material. And then that that culling process obviously happens within conversations between groups about what is and isn't an appropriate way to perpetuate the past. So again, this idea of telling people that they can't handle their own material culture because they're not doing it the way that you think it should be done is tough, but it is kind of part of that process, right? And so yeah. it kind of also kind of ties into the that question of like, well, do they care about the questions that you're answering? Or do they care that those things do perpetuate into the future? Or is it just kind of a part of their past that they integrate into their own being, their own agency, their own practices, and therefore they don't need that material thing anymore to feel like it is real or it happened or is important? Um, and those are just very difficult questions to ask and just really have to take place on a, <laughs> a thing-by-thing basis. And um, there's never any one right answer that's going to make everyone happy. If I want right. everything I own to be burned to the ground the moment I die, but my children like are like, well, no, I'd really like that coffee table or, or whatever that mom had. So what? I want it to be burned down. Like who's, who's to tell me sure. <laughs> you know, that I can't do that? And I think that's the importance of bringing the indigenous population, whether that is, uh, you know, the tribal communities in the United States or the people who are actually living in Greece right now. You know, we think of it as a universal, but there are Greek people today. You can go and shake their hands and look at the beautiful Acropolis Museum while you're doing it. Um, (laughs) But including them into these kind of larger scientific conversations is really important. And, you know, we're still not great at it, but... It seems to be getting a little bit better uh, as time goes on. Yeah, absolutely. An excellent transition, my friend. 
I applaud you on that. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, we're in the end of the day, we're all human and we're just doing the best we can, you know, in the same way that science is falsifiable, right? You, you are looking for answers. You never have found all the answers. Otherwise there'd be no reason to do science, right? right. In the same way we are approaching cultural heritage and we are approaching the management or the preservation of cultural heritage in the best way we know how myself as a pretty much Western European, now American, I cannot a hundred percent fully appreciate what a Greek citizen feels about something that they've um, either had taken from them or haven't had taken from them. And so, like you said, I mean, it is very important to incorporate people who are in much more connected to the material so that they can be a part of that conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And I know we had mentioned when we talked previously that um, sometimes it goes the way you want it to, and sometimes the way it doesn't, um, specifically with the Greeks. And again, with the excavations I've been a part of, I mean, most of the local population that we work with, I mean, they make up the majority of our workforce, first of all. So they're actually, you know, hands on the ground getting involved, not just with the digging, but also the conservation and sure. you know the, the preservation and all that sort of stuff of that material. And, and they're super enthusiastic about it. And they are just really appreciate that other people care, that other people, you know, give a shit, <laughs> um, basically. But then there's these, there are, there is a subset of the population that are like, this is our stuff to do with as we want. You can't come in here and tell me that it's so important that I can't do something else with it. So for example, you know, if, you know, back in the knots or the aughts, um, I guess when Greece's economy took a pretty hard tumble, there was a significant uptick in looting and archeological sites because there are these people who feel connected to the material, but therefore, and, and do feel ownership over it, but therefore they feel like they have the right to go in and kind of use it as a piggy bank, if you will. And, and I'm not trying to belittle, you know, the mindsets of these people in any way, shape or form. I mean, cause there is a very real difference between, you know, oh, I didn't get paid because my hours were cut versus I cannot feed my family. And, and what types of practices are you going to engage in when you have to actually survive? And so these, these, notions that this is, I'm connected to this material. I can somehow make money and therefore improve my situation, you know, in this day and age using this material that was kind of deposited by my ancestors or whatever. Why shouldn't I be able to do that? Well, I personally, me, I don't think that looting and then selling on the black market and like transferring things in watermelons across country lines and then and having them end up in art galleries, you know, seven countries away and being sold for millions of dollars is really the way to go about it. But who am I to tell that person just go hungry for a little while longer, maybe work yeah. harder? You know, I mean, that that is sure. a very difficult conversation to have with people, um, especially if you're not of that area. So yes, integrating local populations is very, very important. And you kind of have to be okay if it doesn't go the way you want it to. You're talking about the very sticky situation that comes when you bring multiple voices in and you're maybe not going to get the answer you want. But the important part is having the conversation and including people, especially people who may not have had a voice in their own cultural heritage for a long, long time. But I think we can like firmly take the stance against Lord Elgin. (laughs) I think that 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 is purely objective. That is an objective stance that that guy sucks. Yeah. You've heard it here 
Folks, the Science Night podcast is against colonial looting. <laughs> quote, that guy sucks, unquote. Yeah, quote of the podcast, Lord yeah. Elgin, I hate you. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe here's where we end. The poetic justice of all of this is he did uh, lose his seat in the House of Lords he at did. the end of his life. Came to financial ruin. Karma, I say. Karma. I don't hold a lot of stock in any kind of curses or, or <laughs> omens like that, but... Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> I really hope I don't get sued by any of his estate. <laughs> Does he have an estate? Well, I was going to say, I'm actually not sure if he has any living. You know, oh, even better. Yeah. <laughs> you know, children shouldn't be held responsible for missteps of their parents, right? So I have nothing against any of his progeny or ancestors. Just that guy. <laughs> Last I checked, the, the crown has some other things to deal with right now. So we're probably not going to show up on their radar. Gypsy, thank you so much for talking with me. I learned a lot. Specifically, I learned, you know, bookending all the way back to the beginning that maybe it doesn't belong in a museum. <laughs> uh, quoting our good friend, Indiana Jones. Is there anything that you want to plug or promote before we bring this show in for a landing? Um, so I'm not a big social media person. That's kind of a personal choice. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't really feel the need to promote any of my own kind of research, except for if anyone is interested in archaeology or has a passion for cultural heritage in any way, shape, or form, and they want to feel like they like want to contribute or be a part of that, um, no one will no one will turn you down if you say, hey, I have some extra trowels. Do you want to use it on my ex on your excavation? Or, you know, hey, I would really love to promote your site, if it, even just to educate um, my local, I don't know, like book club about whatever excavations or whatever cultural heritage, you know, project is going on. If anyone has any type of interest in archaeology or cultural heritage, you know, rather than maybe watching Indiana Jones or Laura Croft for the 18th time, reach out to any of your local organizations. Um, especially in this day and age where Zoom is how we live, write, and breathe. Um, <laughs> there are millions, well, I will say thousands of, of scholars and, and researchers and um, just humans, uh, archaeological, who are interested or involved in archaeology who would love to have the opportunity, um, even without any type of, I guess, financial gain, um, to just educate people about the things they're passionate about. Um, you know, talk about the sites they've worked with, talk about the people they've worked with, talk about the places out there in the world that none of us can go to right now. Um, but will one day be able to go to. So never, never, ever hesitate to, you know, Google a place and then email the people who are attached to it. We love to hear from people who are not archeologists or people who don't want like a PhD topic or, you know, want to come work with us, but just, just care. You know, we, we like to feel like people care about what we're doing. Um, just like the next person. So if anything interests you reach out, never hesitate to ask. Um, we're, we're here and would love to share with you what we, what we care about. That is the, the perfect ending to a science communication podcast. If you are interested in something, learn more about it. Yeah. And, and you know what? Tell your kids. I mean, I've given talks to fifth graders, you know, to middle school students. I mean, we don't just talk to adults. We love kids too. Well, maybe not all of us, but I do. Thank you to Gypsy for taking the time to talk to me. I know I kept you a little bit longer than I promised, but I think it was worth it. 
Remember to check out our website, SciNight.com. The page for this episode is loaded with information related to the topics we covered, including a link to the Nemea Center that I mentioned in the commercial break and ways that you can get involved with archaeology. If you are involved in science and want to be part of this show, or if you just have a really great idea for a future episode, send me a message. The link is on the website, and I would love to hear from you. As always, thank you to everyone at the River Power Podcast Mill. It is hard to believe, but this show is closing in on its first birthday. And without the push from the people at River Power, I am almost positive I wouldn't have gotten to this point. So check out every show that is available to you. You can always follow this show on Twitter at ScienceNight1, or you can follow me at James underscore Reed 3. I will be back in a few weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening, and have a great night. I mean, this is probably going to be my first good podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm going to tell Ben you said that. You can. <laughs> oh, my goodness. He's now the number two downloaded. I'm going to keep this part in, too. He's <laughs> now the number two downloaded uh, episode, and it has gone straight to his head. <laughs> That's amazing. He's asking if he should, should I go out in public, or is it not safe anymore? <laughs>